Imagine we're at war with aliens so different from us that we can't possibly understand them. Now let's say that private companies literally own you until you can buy your freedom. Sounds pretty scary, right? Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Karen Osborne. Her debut novel is Architects of Memory, a cinematic space opera from Tor Books. Karen and I talk about her experience playing the most sci-fi of all musical instruments, what her research on the psychology of confined spaces recommends for getting through quarantine, and why private companies will ultimately win the space race. And now, on to the interview. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Karen. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. So I guess first thing, I saw in your bio on your website that you're part of the Homespun Kaylee Band. I'd love to know how you got involved with that. Uh, Phantom, actually. Uh, I, I was I was wandering around this local convention we have here in the Baltimore area called ChessyCon, and I heard this 10-piece Celtic band play, and I was just mesmerized because it was just so much fun. They were dancing around and they had like their guitars in the air and they were playing this music that just had so much joy. So of course I went up and I introduced myself and they were like, do you want to play with us? And I was like, is this how it goes? And (laughs) (laughs) apparently that's, that's how it goes. And so we started playing with them and I've been playing with them for about three years now. And it's just been a blast. Of course, you know, uh, this is currently, I think we're taping at the end of uh, uh, July. It's been March forever, of course. So I can't wait to get yep. back out and and play with them again. We we play parties in uh, in the D.C. Maryland area, and it's just a load of fun. And is it the uh, violin you play with them? Yeah, I play the fiddle uh, with them currently. I have been playing the violin for about 30 years, everything from classical to just some really fun uh, folk and uh, Celtic Irish music. But I've been having a lot of fun with them and playing a lot of parties where people, you know, knock back the scotch and then dance like there's no tomorrow. And I'm getting nostalgic because we're in the pandemic right now and... Uh, I miss music. <laughs> yeah, there's probably not a lot of that singing and dancing in person. Maybe uh, over Zoom or Skype or something. Well, I have a, I have a, I have a baby that just turned one, so there's some, there's some dancing in the house, and it's all very, very funny looking. No. <laughs> so I think you also play the auto harp and the theremin, I believe, or is theremin? Maybe I don't know actually how to say that word. Nope, you got it right. Theremin. Uh, the auto harp, it's a harp, but it has um, different keys you can press down to automatically create chords. It's kind of like a strumming harp folk instrument uh, with, with some shortcuts. Um, and if you look around, it's everywhere. It was in a Taylor Swift video. People think of it as this, you know, 60s sort of thing for hippies to play. But I am a hippie, kind of. So <laughs> it worked. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but you can take it anywhere. You can sing anything on it. You can do metal on it. You can do folk on it. You can do little baby songs on it. I, I've tried and I really do love it. My auto harp itself is the one that belonged to my father. And there's this amazing video of us just bouncing around to um, funny old folk songs somewhere in my house. And the theremin, the theremin is a wonderful instrument. Do you know what it is? I know it's probably the most sci-fi instrument where you kind of like what you move your hands around in the different distances or pitch and volume. Yes, yes. And you don't even have to touch it. It's an electronic instrument that uses, I think it's radio waves. I could be wrong. So it's a very pandemic friendly instrument as well. You don't have to touch anything. And it's hard. A lot of people talk about how, you know, stringed instruments are some of the hardest to play because uh, it's not like the piano where you press down on a key and you get that particular note. But with the violin, at least, you have some sort of tactile response where your finger hits the string and you know kind of where your hand is related to the rest of your body and the instrument. Since you don't touch the theremin while you're playing it, the first couple years when you're playing it, you sound like a dying cat, like the entire time. <laughs> you try to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and it comes out sounding like... Ah, it's hard and I'm still kind of perfecting it. I've only played out with it once at a proper concert and it went pretty well. So I'm hoping to do that again when the pandemic ends. Yeah, I can say as a someone who started learning the saxophone when I was 10, I think my whole family kind of was introduced to that. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and a lot of people stop, I think, when they don't or can't like start really well. It's kind of demoralizing because you see everybody, you know, like like you see maybe like a person who's playing really well on TV or on the radio. But it takes a while to like train your hands and your body into playing an instrument. It's not just, you know, knowing music. It's not just knowing. It's very physical. And I like to tell people who are like, oh, my gosh, I sound terrible. And it's like, yeah, everybody sounds terrible. Yeah. <laughs> got to keep going. <laughs> yeah, I imagine it's uh, much the same as writing. I doubt many people sit down and type out, you know, the next great American novel the very first time they ever try to write something. Oh, some people do it. And God bless them. <laughs> I hate them and I love them. <laughs> I'm very jealous and I look at them and I'm, you know, and, and I become a raving fan of them. But um, for most of us, we just have to practice. Well, uh, I guess moving on more towards the uh, speculative fiction realm, can you remember what first started you on the path to becoming a fan of science fiction and fantasy? I think it was Star Trek The Next Generation. That was the very first thing. Or no, I lied. The very first thing was a book called The Paper Bag Princess. It's a story about a princess whose castle is burned down by a dragon and her fiance is carried off by the dragon. So she puts on the last thing that she has in this world and, and it's a paper bag and she goes after the dragon and outsmarts the dragon. And it's a fabulous book and I'm not going to spoil the ending. If you have never read it, even if you don't have kids, you need to read it because it will make your heart grow 18 sizes. Um, so it was that book. The second thing was Star Trek The Next Generation. My parents sat me down in front of it thinking, you know, I was about seven years old, seven or eight, and they sat me down in front of it going, okay, it's Star Trek. We can have conversations with our daughter about this and she can, you know, introduce her to adult TV, TV that isn't cartoons on Saturday morning. And I don't think they uh, quite understood what would happen next. 
(laughs) (laughs) Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I loved every single moment of it. I loved the spaceship running through. I loved Captain Picard being smart. You know, I, I, I remember having thoughts about why aren't there more women on board? Why didn't they kill kill the cool security woman? And I might have been like seven or eight when that happened. So that started early. (laughs) But it it really did change my life for the better. And um, that is the very first thing I remember. Yeah. And uh, asking the big questions that I feel like a lot of fandom is still asking today. Oh, because they never, they never really stopped. I mean, those are the questions that we keep on uh, looking at and going over in our minds that we keep on, you know, putting in our fiction because they're the important questions. You know, all the questions about how you grow as a human species, how you treat other people, peace versus war. I mean, all the big things that really help us grow as people were in that show. And there have only been a couple shows that have come close to having that first experience of wow, that's amazing for me. Yeah, that's definitely a a special feeling when it does come around. Well, so it seems like very few writers have this perfectly neat and, you know, linear career path to publication. And my understanding is that you took a break from writing for about eight years or so. I did take about an eight year break. I had just moved to Orlando, Florida uh, uh, to follow my husband's job. I had done some things here and there, but I wasn't, you know, finding anything down there that I really, really loved or that I really, really connected with. And I remembered my father was a wedding videographer uh, and he had a wedding videography business in all in New York, where I grew up when I was in high school. And so I kind of did this apprenticeship thing with him where I learned how to work a camera and film people and make a story from it. And of course, this was VHS. So we didn't do a whole lot of editing and we didn't do a whole lot of uh, taping more than just making a really nice thing for people to remember their weddings by. So I left a job, uh, I think in 2009, and I said, why don't I do that? I really think that's something I would love. I would love it. I think I would be good at it. Let's start a wedding videography business. And so I did. I bought uh, cameras. I had some cameras, but they weren't good enough. So I bought cameras. I upgraded my computer. I went and did a whole bunch of weddings for free and practiced and discovered that I was good at it. But I underestimated the amount of time it would take to be excellent at it. For those eight years, I worked pretty much 80 hours a week, 80, 80, 90 hours a week. Sometimes I got a break and only worked 40, but it was a lot. You would leave your house on a Saturday morning. You would roll out to someone's wedding and you would go all day. There was maybe a break around seven o'clock in the evening when you shoved a sandwich down your throat in the back. But it was it was everything I loved. It was fast and it was creative and you had to think on your feet and do all sorts sorts of things right there in that moment. And then you got to go back and edit it. But the long story short was that I I really didn't have any time to do much of anything else. Uh, I took up running because otherwise I was sitting in a chair editing in Adobe all week and you needed to be physical at your job on the weekend. So I took up running, but I didn't write at all. And I missed it a lot. But I also kind of felt about 
I, I think any other time people put such a um, priority on always writing all the time. I have to be writing in order to get better. I have to write, 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 write. And I thought that up until I became a wedding videographer. And I don't think that anymore. Like there are some days when I don't write and, you know, it, it feels like you should be productive, but you're also exercising your creative brain in other ways. Like you're you know, watching a story unfold visually, uh, you're looking at how a bride interacts with her mom and picking out sort of the interesting little dramas in there and trying to figure out how that works. And you're seeing things in a different way. And I think anytime you can exercise your creativity in other ways, it's great. I mean, that's why so many writers are also like knitters and painters and they go for walks and they do collages. So while sometimes I go, oh my gosh, I could have written this like eight years ago and I could have been so much further down the pike. I also don't think I would have written this book without it. So be creative. It's okay to not write sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, I know one of the things I, I see a lot of writers talk about when they give their standard writer's advice is sort of to read outside of your writing. So like words in, words out. But I think you can also replace that with experience in, words out. And you kind of got a lot of experience that sort of indirectly helped you, I think. That's what I know now. At the time, I I was always like, I'm not writing. Oh, God, what's going to what's going to happen to me? Am I never going to publish my book? Ah, You know, all of those, you know, kind of dramatic feelings because you never see anything in the moment you're in. You only see it in 2020 vision. And that's the curse of being human. Yep, absolutely. Uh, And I'm sure uh, now that you do actually have that written book to be published, that uh, all of that anxiety and self-doubt has gone away. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm, totally. <laughs> yeah. I'm lying through my teeth. No, it hasn't gone away at all. And that's perfectly fine. Um, I think a lot of people think when they get that first book deal that, oh, it's going to be great. And I'm, you know, now that I've made it, I'm never gonna, you know, feel like I doubt myself again. And um, I wish I had figured out this particular metaphor, but someone once said, and I think it was at Viable Paradise, a workshop I went to once, that writing's like climbing a mountain. You get to the top of the mountain and your next mountain is there too. And it's a little higher and it's a little tougher. Yeah. And so it's important to sort of deal with like anxiety and and the imposter syndrome and and all of those writing brain weasels, as we like to call them, in a fashion like that treats yourself today, not the person in the future that is supposedly not going to be, you know, anxious because that's never going to happen. I wish it would. I, I I could definitely use that, but eh. Yeah, I know. Uh, I think it was actually another podcaster I know said once something that kind of resonates with me where it's your current self is as deserving of happiness as your future self. Uh, and so I think that's that's really powerful, regardless of what your career is. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because you can always look at other people um, and you can look at yourself and you can look at yourself and be like, I could be so much better. Or, you know, you look at other writers and go, oh, but they're getting this and that and the other thing. And then you completely forget that you've come a long way no matter where you are. Like, let's say you've never published anything, but you have stories like in the can ready to go out. Or you've written like a hundred thousand word fan fiction um, masterpiece and put it up on archive of our own. Like, 
I admire people who can put up fan fiction. I have two things of fan fiction online, two things, and that's it. And and I get so scared about like putting it up because I'm like, what will people think? Oh no, did I do the character right? But I absolutely agree with that. It's like, don't sacrifice what you have now and the person who has fought to be someone awesome just because of something you might have in the future. That's a recipe for being unhappy, I think. Never looking at yourself and going, you know, self, good job. (laughs) Sometimes we need to say that. Well, it sounds a little egotistical, doesn't it? Like it goes, self, good job. You did good there. But, um, you know, I just think that's one of the problems with our society is that we never do that. We don't allow ourselves to be happy for ourselves sometimes. So you did mention Viable Paradise. So I wanted to ask you, how was your experience attending writing workshops? I know, I think at least Viable Paradise and Clarion you've been to. Yeah, I've been to both of them. They're very different, but they both give you different kinds of tools to attack a career in speculative fiction. Um, In college, I did sort of a a professional communications journalism track, and I didn't get to do a whole lot of fun writing or fiction writing or anything of that. So I did all that on my own. And I thought, you know, and for some people, that's fine. You can learn all that you need to learn on your own. I needed a kick in the pants. And both of those workshops gave me a big kick in the pants. Viable Paradise is about a week long and you go in with 24 other people that usually become your bestest of friends because it's a tiring experience. And the people who run the workshop basically give you tools. They hand you a toolbox of how to use your skills to work in the environment of speculative fiction today. Um, Basically, when I went into Viable Paradise... I was like, I don't even know why I'm here. Certainly they could have given this to someone who really deserved it. You know, why Why? Why did they pick me? And I came out and the most important thing I learned there was that I belonged. I could do it. And I didn't think I could do it at Viable Paradise. I learned I could. Um, For some other people, that thing that they bring out of Viable Paradise was sort of an understanding of how pacing functions. It's an understanding of how the industry sometimes works. It's, It's different for everyone. And it's just a week and it's on Martha's Vineyard. And I remember every single second of it. It was so wonderful. Clarion is very, very, very different. It's wonderful in a whole bunch of different ways. It's uh, six weeks long. I went to the one in San Diego, which was just amazing. Basically, you spend all morning in class with about, I think it was 18 other people who are much better writers than you. And they come in and they're all writing all sorts of different things. So you had some fantasists and some more action, you know, action Star Trek-y people like me. And you had a couple people that wrote such beautiful things that you're just like, oh my God. Um, One of them has a new book coming out. One of my... um Clarion Friends has a new book coming out. I think by the time this goes out, it will be in stores. Uh, It's Ashley Boom's Every Bone a Prayer. And you should read it because it's amazing. But Clarion is, you write a story a week and then you put that story in front of others and they comment on it. 
And that's how you learn. You take all the good comments, you take all the critical comments, and you revise and you revise and you revise. It's kind of like putting yourself on a pedestal and grabbing a hammer and a chisel and chiseling yourself out of a block of wood or marble or whatever. Um, I found out a lot about my writing in myself at Clarion that I don't think I could have found sitting in my own apartment. I needed those other people and I'll be like eternally, eternally grateful for them. Again, this is a caveat where I say I needed it. Other people might not. You know, it's all about you and what you need and how you learn as a person, I'm like, in case you couldn't tell yet, I'm a ridiculous extrovert. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned best from other people. And that's why Clarion was so wonderful. Yeah. And sort of my last uh, little writing craft before we get into the meat of your novel, I think you write on an alpha smart typing tool. I've actually never heard of that before. So there was a company in the 90s who made these uh, sort of keyboards for kids. And that's what they were. They are just regular old keyboards. The processor is uh, might run a coffee maker. <laughs> the machine turns on. It displays four lines at a time. It will hold about like 100,000 words, so about a full novel. And it shuts off. And that's what it does. That's all it does. And you put four batteries in there and it lasts for, I think it took me maybe a year and a half to two years of consistent use to replace the batteries. So it's a tool that you can throw in your bag because it was made for kids to bang on and throw across the room. I've thrown it across the room once and it, and it survived. So it's this thing you can throw in your bag and take anywhere, um, outside, inside, a bar, your coffee house, like your car, when you're waiting to pick somebody up from work, you can bring your work anywhere. It's the ultimate focus tool. I wrote, I wrote both of my current novels for Tor on it. It's not very good for editing. You really do need your computer for editing. <laughs> but if you're like me and you can just like vomit out like your, your draft, it's a life changer. You can't buy them. You have to pretty much go on eBay or know someone or have a connection, but you can get them for like five to $20 and they will change your life. Yeah, I'm I'm looking up a picture right now on my computer, uh, and it looks like you're basically typing something onto like a fancy calculator screen. So you have my respect for being able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's no waiting for it to boot up. You press on, you press a key that says one, and it activates number one, and then you go right back to it. It's made for kids, so it was made with absolutely no no steps in mind, nothing that would trip a third grader up, because anything that trips a third grader up also trips a writer up. Let's just be honest here. <laughs> <laughs> we want to get to our work and not have to go through too many other spots. It doesn't crash. It does nothing but what you absolutely want it to do, and I really wish they were still making them. Yeah, well, I'm glad you were able to find one. And it sounds like they never die, pretty much. There's a whole model that is on the pre-USB setup. I, I don't remember what it's called, but it's got the little pins. So those are hard to interface with modern computers. I had to update mine to 
I think, I forget what the model is called. It's not the Dana, but if you go on eBay and, and look around and type in Alpha Smart, you can see them and try to figure out which one is best for you. There are like three or four models. It's such a simple piece of equipment. And whenever somebody comes out with, oh, it's, oh, oh this is the perfect writing tool, I look at them and I go, really? <laughs> <laughs> That's that's definitely a strong pitch. I may uh, end up looking into that. Well, so we've kind of uh, mentioned your book briefly, but we haven't really talked about it much yet. So Architects of Memory out now uh, with Tor Books. Do you have a pitch for us? I can give it a try. Um, Architects of Memory is, is about indentured salvage pilot Ash Jackson. Um, she's threading a very thin needle after the alien attack that killed her fiancé and ruined uh, the company she hoped to join as a citizen. Uh, she's sick with a terminal illness, but if her new company finds out, she'll be tossed out of the program. She won't get a cure, she won't qualify, and she won't ever see her new love, her ship's captain ever again. So that's kind of the stressful environment in which Ash is working when she uncovers a strange new alien weapon in some battlefield wreckage. And it's a weapon from uh, the war that they have all just fought against these uh, terrible aliens known as the Vi. And every company wants it. And every company has a plan to get it. And uh, she realizes that it might turn her into a weapon herself. So it's pretty wild and it's glorious and it's hopeful. And I hope it's terrifying too, all at the same time. And I hope people love reading it as much as I loved writing it. Well, that's, that's a hell of a pitch, I have to say. <laughs> it's definitely firmly in my mind space opera. It seems kind of obvious to say that, but for me, like I've just kind of started getting into space operas this year. Uh, and so Architects of Memory is one of the ones that got me into that genre. So I was curious to hear from you. Uh, what what do you even think? Like, what is a space opera? What are the conventions? Like asking both because I really want to know and uh, if anyone else is like me and just doesn't know. Well, the very first thing I mention when I talk about space opera is basically Star Wars and Star Trek. So it's these massive, uh, glorious, complicated plots unfolding against an array of systems. And imagine big fleets and politics and uh, sometimes empires and and the opera part, which sometimes has massive love stories and basically anything that might happen in an opera or, you know, like a musical you might see on Broadway, but put it in space and have a lot of fun. And that's a space opera. Space operas don't always have hard science fiction sort of. They're not often very concerned about how the light speed drive works. They're more concerned about what you do with the light speed drive and how much drama you can <laughs> how much drama you can create with the light speed drive. I mean, I think it's the best science fiction uh, subgenre out there because you can do so much with it. You can get technical if you want, or you can just say that people go from planet to planet and do your own world building that way. And it's basically my favorite thing. Start with Star Wars is what I usually tell people. That's a great entrance point. Some of the more recent space operas that have come out and Leckie's ancillary series. Uh, there's also um, Arkady Martin's A Memory Called Empire. That is a very 
big, wonderful political space opera. And I think the most recent one, which I haven't read yet, it's sitting right here and I can read it when I'm done with my work, is uh, Kate Elliott's Unconquerable Sun, which is Alexander the Great in space. So another thing you can say about a convention is it's 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 blank in space. Um, and it's just a lot of fun and it's a place you can explore a lot of different sorts of aspects of humanity. Yeah. And uh, I know from the Reddit Fantasy Virtual Con panel you were in on space operas, I love how you described uh, the role of space opera is just to make you feel like you've been given a shot of adrenaline and placed in front of Do You Hear the People Sing for the First Time, uh, which I think is fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot I wrote that. Um, Yes, that's exactly what its role is. And that's why I love it so much. I I am a big Broadway fan. (laughs) Yeah. And admittedly, I never connected space opera with opera. Uh, I don't know how I've been looking at the word space opera for so long without uh, making that connection, but yeah. It's kind of common because we don't always think about opera and a lot, and we really should because it's wonderful. Opera isn't always something we uh, connect to directly because it's become less accessible, I think, in our day and age. Um, You're more likely to go to like a summer amphitheater for something like Camelot than you are to hear um, to go see Turando. And I think that's very sad, but um, you can put that in space now. And I love that. (laughs) So one thing I did want to ask you, because I know uh, this is your debut novel, and this is an interesting time, shall we say, to be a (laughs) debut author, uh, to say the least. So what's been the process like for you so far? Like, how's it been... uh, debuting during a pandemic. I it's it's the weirdest experience because here's this thing I've wanted all my life, right? You know, I can remember being like 13 and walking into my high school library and my li- and the librarian told me that I, I it hadn't occurred to me that people got, you know, that that the people could write books for a career, that it wasn't just something people did for fun when they were running away from bullies, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's something I've wanted for nigh on 30 years at this point, and here it comes, and here's the year. Um, publishing can be notoriously slow, and and a lot of books take years to go from contract and your first sale to publication. And that's just because the process takes a while. You have to have galleys, and you have to have multiple rounds of editing and there are art people involved and there are just a whole bunch of people involved. So it was about two and a half years from when I signed the contract to August 25th. And I saw the pandemic coming and I had this like... I I don't know if you've ever had a feeling where there's a coal in your stomach and then the whole world drops out on you and then everything just starts burning. (laughs) Well, that's, that, that's pretty much how I felt. And, and I kind of still feel that way whenever somebody doesn't wear a mask. (laughs) So I'm just going to say that (laughs) no need to get political. (laughs) I'm just getting a little political there, (laughs) but At the same time, it's kind of been a blessing because I'm here at my house. I live in Baltimore, Maryland um, with my family and I'm here and I can control my schedule. I mean, I I don't honestly know what's going to happen. I I don't know because a lot of, I I don't know if people are going to be able to walk into a bookstore and get it. I don't know if they're going to hear about it. Um, I don't know what publishers are going to think about the numbers. So there's a lot of, you know, stuff that you can get really, really, really anxious about. And that's also a blessing too, because you have to just learn to ignore it. And I've been working on that. 
I've been working on being like, okay, so I'm here. It's happening. Let's concentrate on the art and let's concentrate on the good stuff, the stuff that you came for. And let's just kind of not worry about any of the stuff that's out of your control. And so that's been difficult for me because as I said, I'm a big extrovert and I like to be in control of things. So I guess we're going to see what's going to happen. And I think the one good thing is that from now on, I'm going to have a darn good story to tell at conventions. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. For the rest of your career, you can say, yep, like you think you have it hard. Well, I debuted <laughs> when the world was on fire. Yeah, the world was on fire and I couldn't go outside because my neighbor's still having barbecues. <laughs> yep. No, no, they're good neighbors. I love them. I really do. That actually segues nicely into, I know uh, you've done research for Architects of Memory into how people deal with these confined spaces and not being able to get away from each other. And so that kind of directly applies toward people now quarantined in this pandemic. Oh, yeah. You have to communicate. Communication is the only way I have read and from the research that I've done. If it's pretty much the only way you're going to get through it. If you're in the same room with someone for a very long time, you're just going to have to head off conflict at the pass. So one thing that they do on the uh, International Space Station, for example, is you'll find out a lot of astronauts that talk about dealing with conflict as soon as it comes up. So even now you've been in that your house with your family and you'll notice that the littlest things bother people. The littlest things will bother you. Not to throw my partner under the bus, but we've been married for about, uh, we've been married for uh, September 17th will be 15 years. And there are some things I've only just noticed now in the pandemic. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, wow, you really do that, don't you? There are actually some really, really, really cool experiments that are happening now to prepare people to go to Mars, because that's going to be three months there and however long you're going to be on Mars and three months back. So it's best if you can handle your anxiety it's best if you can handle interpersonal conflict pretty well. And if you really understand who you are, I think, is is what I understood from some of the stories I've read from people who have done that kind of isolation. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because to see kind of how directly applicable that research was to uh, both Architects of Memory and the very near future. Oh, yeah. <laughs> A lot of times people kind of just project like, oh, what will this technology be in the future? And they focus on like the hard technological aspects of science fiction. But there's kind of such a thing. Uh, I think you've said this before of hard sociological SF. Uh, yeah. And well, I, I mean, I think sociology is a hard science anyway, because sociologists do everything that all scientists do. They do hard research. They record data. They work with hypotheses and and all of the above. But sociology tells us, you know, how we react and how we are. One of the things that some people are doing studies on now um, and you can see it. You can see it in your family. You can see it in your neighborhood that, you know, your kid can be on a Zoom with their friends 24-7. They can be texting 24-7 and it's just not the same. And of course, we're all trying to figure out how to help ourselves and our friends and our family get through this point. The answer is science. Science will help. 
<laughs> yep. Um, but absolutely, you know, sociology and anthropology and all of that, it's just as hard as the rest of the sciences. And I know people are going to fight me on that, but <laughs> that that's what I believe because, you know, physics will help you build a jet engine or um, biology will help you grow food for when you're in space. But it's psychology and sociology that's going to tell you how to live there. Yes, absolutely. And not uh, be at each other's throats the entire time. Yep. I'm not going to get into too much of a spoiler, but the 25 crew doesn't always talk as much as they probably should. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that's a spoiler. I think that applies to uh, almost everyone everywhere in fiction and reality. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially now. Yeah. Yeah. Especially now. So another thing that uh, I appreciated about uh, your book was sort of the examination of in-stage capitalism. So it's not governments that get us off the planet. It's unfortunately the companies. Uh, so there's not like these nations. There's just giant corporations. It's essentially being like, oh, yeah, I grew up in the Microsoft society. Uh, we're at war with the Amazonians, but not like the fun warriors like the company. Uh-huh. So I started writing this in 2016 before the dread election. And um, Amazon was, you, you know, it was pretty big. And SpaceX was working on their on this ship. Uh, but that was all still kind of in progress. And now we're on the other side of that. And uh, I don't know if you watched the Crew Dragon going up. Not only did it look completely like a science fiction show, I was like, is this real? Is this actually happening? I was like, you know, the American government paid a private company to do this. And it's I mean, I really do think it's going to be private companies that get us off because private companies generally have more of a very particular focus where, <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to say our government is not doing a very good job of focusing at all <laughs> on anything. So, That's an understatement. <laughs> so... um and of course, Amazon just had, uh, I want to say I'm going to get this wrong because I don't have it in front of me, but I read today that it grew more in the past two, three months than it did in the past decade. Wow. So I, I kind of see, you know, that the more we give up to companies, like we give up a lot to companies nowadays. Um, when I looked at my credit card balance and, you know, you know, I'm a hippie liberal. I, I love buying local. I will go out of my way to buy local. But when I looked at how much was on my credit card from Amazon this time, I'm like, am I signing my soul away here? And they make it so easy for you to get everything you need from them. As a science fiction writer, it's basically my job to go, and what might happen from that? <laughs> so that's how it goes. Um, I really do think that, I mean, if we keep on going in this direction, companies will be far more important to our current modern lives than governments ever will be. Yeah, I, I feel that pretty hard, especially as someone who is currently recording this from inside his Amazon smart home. Oh, you've got a smart home. <laughs> oh, yes, uh, only as smart as my ability to actually tinker with it. But yes, technically. Oh, oh, that scares me. There's a fabulous Sarah Pinsker story about a smart home, about a CEO and his smart home. I forget what it's called, but you need to look it up. I'm not trying to scare you, but it's fabulous. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to look that up probably tonight. Uh, well, another thing in Architects of Memory, uh, you kind of touch on, at least as a theme, is healthcare as a privilege versus healthcare as a right. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. 
The answer to that question is a little personal because I have a couple of uh, pre-existing conditions that if the Affordable Care Act ever fell by the wayside, so to speak, I would end up working until I die in a job that gives me health care because basically no one wants to insure a person that could just throw a blood clot and die at any given time, right? So if you're looking at someone who can throw a blood clot at any time or someone who, who has a disability, um, you have to look at that person and go, do they deserve to live? And that's generally what our societies are doing right now, which is awful and terrible. And it's so normal that we don't really see it, do we? It's so normal that, you know, here in America, even now, there are people that don't have health care. And why? Why don't they have health care? Because they might work a job that doesn't give it to them because the job doesn't make enough money. And our answer to that society is not, let's help them get health care. It's they deserve it. They're poor. So... Um, other countries have kind of figured out that healthcare for all, in whatever way they figured out for doing it, leads to healthier societies and people that have more money to spend because they're not like paying a twenty thousand uh, dollar medical bill. Ask me how I know, and just people that are less stressed out and people that are able to take risks because they know they have a safety net. Um, I was away from health insurance for about a year, a year and a half uh, in Florida, and it was the most terrifying, terrifying like year of my life because I'd be like, do I really need to go to the store? What if I get into a car accident? That could ruin me forever. Personally, as a writer and as a human being, like I don't see how a society that operates on healthcare as a privilege is really going to be healthy enough to do something like go to space. So the indenture system in Architects of Memory is kind of inspired off of what they would do in the Virginia Company in the 1600s, where you as like a resident of England or London, and you didn't have a whole lot of money, you can't get over there on your own. So you hook up with a patron who you work for for seven to eight years before you get land of your own. And that's what happened quite a bit so to bring colonists from England over, over to the Americas, especially in Virginia. I was maybe halfway through the writing the second book, uh, which is coming out in February, when I was trolling Twitter one day and Elon Musk, who is, of course, the founder of SpaceX, was talking about how people that, that can't afford to go to Mars can just, you know, <laughs> um, the company can pay and they can pay the company back when they get there and how that was such a new and interesting thing to do. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, and I went to the wall and I kind of banged my head on the wall for a little bit. Understandably so, especially when there might be compelling reasons, as you discuss in your book, for people wanting to leave the planet in the first place. I think uh, in Architects of Memory, it was climate change. Yeah, it's climate change. That's not what the story is about. So it's there. The story is about other things, but it's there. That's why people left the earth. It's climate change. There were a couple of wars in the world building. Um, people still live on earth, but it, it's not a very nice place to live. And if you want a good life, really, the only way is to go corporate. Uh, not at all a parallel for uh, our society now. Oh, no, not at all. I, you know, <laughs> that's not that's not what I was planning at all. 
well, I guess stepping away from uh, the human side of things, uh, something that definitely stands out is the whole fundamentally alien aliens. In Architects Memory, this is not the little green men who are basically just like uh, bastardization pulling from a bunch of different societies. Uh, these are like not even remotely human. So how, how did you approach that in your writing? I basically tried to uh, think up the least human thing I could think up. Um, so what would a like what, what would a human feel like when they're punched in the face? Oh, they might get angry. Um, what's the opposite of that? And then I kept on building on that until I got to a point where I was realizing that I had something and I was unable to really write it. Like I just did it. I, I don't remember how it just happened. Yep. Fair enough. I think that's a absolutely valid answer. Okay. Well, uh, looking forward, um, are there just any other books that you can recommend? Uh, I, they don't necessarily have to be space operas or similar to yours at all, but just maybe something you've read recently, maybe something that uh, you're really excited about coming out soon. One book I read recently, and uh, it's on the top of my mind because uh, of the pandemic and how uh, all-encompassing the pandemic has been for everyone, um, is Sarah Pinsker's Song for a New Day. And it's about a rocker who was just about to break, you know, to break through and start her career um, and really hit the big time when a pandemic rolls through and ruins everything and shuts off, uh, <laughs> shuts off live music. And so this, it's a story of that as well as the story of maybe about 10 to 15 years in the future when everyone has kind of stayed in their homes and is using technology to I en engage with the world. And this came out in November, I think, uh, of last year. And it's a wonderful book. And it's eerie to read because the author, uh, Sarah Pinsker, got everything right. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to call her, you know, I'm not going to call her Cassandra or anything like that. But she got everything right. And currently I read it again. Well, I had a great time reading it the first time I read it. It was a fabulous book, a lot of fun. Um, but the second time I read it through, I got chills and it, the, the ending is just, it's this beautiful, hopeful ending that I loved the first time. But the second time I literally had tears because I wanted it so badly. <laughs> so I highly recommend that, especially if you're feeling down about the pandemic or living through it has you questioning your life or anything like that and how your life interfaces with the rest of the world. I know I am and a lot of my friends are. So the second one is a new series out uh, by Arkady Martin. And it is about uh, Mahit Desmar, and she is an ambassador from a space station who, who becomes the ambassador to this massive empire uh, that's kind of like culturally gobbling up all the smaller principalities around it. And she goes there, um, and she has the memories and the personality of the previous ambassador in her mind to sort of guide her and... And help her, you know, exist in this completely diametrically opposite world. Problem is, the reason she was chosen was because the ambassador had been murdered. 
So it's it's kind of a murder mystery in this beautiful, massive, and slightly scary empire. It's got fabulous characters, lots of action, um, commentary on what memory is, and that that's not something I'm not. <laughs> that's something I'm interested in at all. Nothing. <laughs> that seems relevant for someone who wrote Architects of Memory. <laughs> um, and her second book, which is, I, I don't know when it's coming out, I think March of next year, A Desolation Called Peace, uh, is reportedly uh, more space-based and has fleets and and space battles. And anyone who can pull off a, um, a massive operatic political drama plus space battles has my loyalty forever. So I cannot wait for A Desolation Called Peace. Yeah. And uh, I guess, so bring the focus back to you a little bit. Are there any other current or future projects that you'd like to talk about? The sequel to Architects of Memory, which is called Engines of Oblivion, is currently scheduled for, I think it's February 9th of next year. I mean, this is the pandemic, so anything could happen. So take that with a grain of salt and check <laughs> your local bookseller for the date. It's uh, what happens maybe about six months to a year after the events of Architects of Memory. And to say anything else would be a massive spoiler for the end of the first book. But I'm really excited because it's a completely different novel than the first one. I get to go into Aurora a little more and, and the structure of what they do and what it's like to work in that atmosphere. And we spend a couple scenes on Earth. So you get to see what's happening there and what it was like maybe to grow up there. And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, wild computer fun times in that. So I'm hoping that people will pick that one up as well. Well, a question I always like to close out with, uh, and it's both kind of poorly timed, but maybe also necessary in this time. What's just one thing you're really excited about right now? Oh, so many things. <laughs> um, coffee houses. Oh, me too. I miss coffee houses. Just just going there and, and having coffee and just being able to do that again at my local would be amazing. But I am looking forward to the art that is being developed right now. Um, right now, people are challenging themselves in ways they've never been challenged before. Uh, I'm just going to use a an example everyone will know. You know, here comes Taylor Swift with an indie album from nowhere. <laughs> and there are a million Taylor Swifts out there and, and authors who are doing all sorts of wonderful new things now. And because of the way the industry works, we might not get to see it for another a couple of years, but it's going to happen. And all that wonderful, challenging work is going to come out. And I'm really, really, really looking forward to reading it. Yeah, me as well. And not making my own coffee. That that, that would be nice. <laughs> um, Karen, thank you so much for coming on the Fantasy End podcast. This has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. And I hope we all can go out to bookstores again and, and drink coffee and always, always, always keep reading. You can find Karen Osborne on Twitter as Karenthology or at our website, karenosborne.com. Architects of Memory is a fast-paced cinematic space opera that asks big questions about capitalism and war. It helped jumpstart my interest in space operas and I can't wait for the sequel. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server, where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. 
If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.